everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the snowy and festive halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati. And this is it. This is our holiday episode. This is our last episode of 2016. And it is our four-year anniversary. Can you believe it? Nope. We've come a long way from my living room with a rock band mic, I'll tell you that. Especially these, the last two years. I think this is how long it really took us to, to hit our stride. Our numbers are way up. We're starting to appear on iTunes higher and higher all the time. And you just got to stick with it. And thank you guys for sticking with us. Yeah, for something that started out as a kind of scheme for me to hang out with Andrea on a more regular basis, I can only say that some schemes are meant to work. (laughs) But without further ado, we have to get into the topic at hand. And what a topic at hand. We are talking about Joe Dante's Christmas classic, 1984 Gremlins. And this is a film that means so much to so many people because I think if you're a horror kid or or for a lot of horror kids, you really grew up with this film. But that was not the case for me. And we should get this out of the way right at the front. I was born in 85. I probably saw it late 80s, early 90s. And it scared the crap out of me. I think for the longest time, I didn't even finish it. It just, as soon as the Mogwais turned into actual gremlins, it became way too intense. And especially that scene in the science class, I was like, fuck, no, 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 no. So it has only kind of entered my repertoire of holiday films to watch at this time of year in the last couple years. And I am always shocked by how violent and crazy this movie is. Yeah, I had kind of the same experience where I I saw it as a kid and I enjoyed it. It didn't touch me as deeply as Ghostbusters, although on the rewatch, it reminds me a lot of Ghostbusters in that it was kind of a fantasy comedy that had strong horror elements. And for a lot of people who saw it as a kid, this was a gateway to horror. If you liked the horror elements, that's the direction you went. And even if you didn't, even if you just liked the cuteness and the Spielbergian-ness of it, you still dug it. However, working more in horror now and looking back on it, you can see what an extremely influential film it was, not only to many people, but to the genre, as I'm sure we're going to get into. It was influential in terms of it helped create a whole MPAA rating all on its own. And that was something spearheaded by Spielberg, who was like, you know what? It shouldn't be PG. It's definitely not G. And so Gremlins, in addition to Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, is what essentially brought about the PG-13 rating. So at the time, this movie was really in a league of its own. And I think there's a lot of hand-wringing in the horror community about this PG-13 rating. And maybe that's a topic for another episode down the line. But a lot of people kind of question whether or not a PG-13 can ultimately yield a horror film. And for me, I really – I don't subscribe to that way of thinking. It's not something I like to engage with because I think horror can come in many forms. But when you have a small monster blended to death – in a blender by a housewife, that to me just says horror. That's a horror movie. I also see a lot of really arbitrary distinctions about what is what isn't a horror movie and what is and what isn't a Christmas movie. Is it a Christmas movie? Is it a movie set in Christmas? Man, who fucking cares? It's a cool movie. And I think through our discussion that we're about to have, we're going to get into A lot of what Gremlins accepts, but a lot of what it rejects, which is most things. It doesn't really kind of come down on the side of this is good or this is bad. There are very few things that work out well in this film. And Joe Dante, the director, we talked about him in our episode on Piranha. He's a very conscientious director. He's a very educated man. And when I see interviews with him and I got to see him speak at a Festival of Fear a while back, he echoes the sentiment that we are always pounding on in this podcast, which is to say a director puts out a text, puts out a movie, and what it could mean to one person is totally different from what it could mean to another person. And so I think people have very personal personal readings of this film, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what the rest of you think about it. So without further ado, let's get into Gremlins. Billy Pelser has a nice home. Billy, is that you? Yeah, Mom, it's me. A nice job. A nice girl. If you're not doing anything this Thursday night, maybe you'd like to uh, go out on a 
date with me? I'd love to. And loving parents who were about to give him... You're gonna like this. No, 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 don't shake it. We're gonna have to open it now. It won't wait till Christmas. The most unusual gift he ever got. What is it? No. It's your new pet. Come on, Barney, be a good dog. My dad gave it to me. But there are a few things to keep in mind. If you expose it to the light, you may hurt it. If you get it wet, it will multiply. All that from water? They got wet? Yeah, plain water. And most important, no matter how much they beg, never, never let them eat after midnight. Because when they do, they change. They become clever. Mischievous. What's going on here? And dangerous. Gremlins, huh? Little monsters. Right. Hundreds of them. Well, I, I don't know, maybe thousands. They've been here too. Billy, what are these things? Where do they come from? Look, I know it sounds crazy. I know. But in a few hours, you're gonna have a major disaster on your hands. Directed by Joe Dante. They'll be expecting you. Would-be inventor Randall Peltzer acquires through means not totally sanctioned by the store owner a Christmas present for his grown son Billy in a Chinatown antique store. The gift in question is a sort of pet, an adorable mogwai named Gizmo. Billy is ecstatic to receive Gizmo as it takes away from his current problems at the bank where he works, his anxiety over asking out Kate, his pretty co-worker, and the fact that the town Scrooge, Mrs. Deagle, wants to kill his dog. Almost immediately, Billy's friend Pete gets Gizmo wet and Gizmo spawns more mogwais. These other mogwais indulge in eating after midnight and transform into gremlins. Soon it is up to Billy, Kate, and Gizmo to stop the gremlins and their leader, Stripe. They manage to kill most of the gremlins when they are in a movie theater watching Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, then confront and kill Stripe in a nearby department store before he can spawn more gremlins. Billy and Kate and Gizmo have saved the town in time for Christmas Day. Ah, oh, they did it. It's a Christmas miracle. It's a very heartwarming film. It's a very uplifting film. And it bears mention, a lot of people know this, but earlier drafts of the script of Gremlins was considerably darker, considerably more horror, and the changes really worked in the film's favor. In the original draft, you've got Billy's dog actually getting killed by the gremlins. You've got his mother getting killed by the gremlins. There's supposed to be a scene where her head bounces down the stairs when Billy gets home. That would have been a significantly different film. And another really significant change that Steven Spielberg made in the very kind of last stages before production was that Gizmo himself was supposed to become a gremlin. And they decided to keep him cute and cuddly and an ally throughout. Yeah, and one of the things I read, it was that Gizmo was actually supposed to become Stripe. And I think we should mention at this point that the screenwriter for Gremlins is actually Christopher Columbus, not the discoverer of worlds, quote unquote, but he's a really now famous family-style film director. He did uh, a lot of films that we would all know. And more recently, he was a big part of getting the Harry Potter franchise off the ground. And the script that he wrote was when he was trying to break into Hollywood. And he wrote it kind of as a spec script, something to show around. And he never intended for it to get made. And I think it was only when it got into the hands of Steven Spielberg that Spielberg himself saw a lot of potential in this story. And by stripping away some of the darker elements... To to make a really fun, interesting film. And I am not a big Steven Spielberg fan. He is someone who I find does a lot of emotional manipulation in his films. They're always a bit too sweet and saccharine for me. They're just not my taste in film. But I think his pulling back in some ways, some of the violence is the reason why we have gremlins. And I think, you know, we all have to kind of tip our hat to him that in some point he had a really good handle on how to make a film that kept a lot of the integrity of the story, but got it into a mainstream enough format so it would still work. 
It also helped make the film that much more commercial because you could make tons and tons of merch featuring the adorable gizmo. And I think if you're around our age, you remember the Furby fad, which was, to me, a direct ripoff of gizmo. I hope they made some royalties for that one. What's that? Bring me up. It's my Furby. Furby loves you love Tickle me. Furby, the first gigapet you pet. Go ahead. Pet me. Teach to say her name. Me, Noodle. Play games. Big bad. Oh. And love you back. Uh-oh. Achoo. <laughs> Your Furby sneezed. Achoo. And gave mine a cold. Furby loves you love Oh, I think they made all of the royalties, and we'll probably get to talk a little bit about the sequel later on in the episode, but it's kind of important to realize what a huge cultural thing this film became, and why I love a film like this is that Gremlins became a cultural moment, and it was pretty worldwide in a lot of ways, particularly through the Western world, and what's important about that is the way this film satirizes and breaks down everything that is near and dear to Americana especially in the 80s. So I think we should take a look at that right now. Let's. Oh, shit. I, fuck, Andrea, I spilled, I spilled the wine again. No. Ah, damn it. Okay, um, fuck Did it. Did you spill just, it on anything? I don't, fuck, I, saw, I thought I saw something move. Something scurry over there. Yeah, it was probably just a reflection off the coaster. Wait, did you hear that? Okay, it's fine. Okay, no, I'm responsible enough to do this. Okay. <laughs> So ultimately, for me, I think we can read Gremlins as a satire and indictment of everything that was kind of near and dear to 1980s America. Now, we've talked about 1980s America on and off throughout this podcast, but just to quickly recap, this is a time of conservatism through Ronald Reagan, who was the president throughout the eight years from 1980 to 1988. He was then followed by the first George Bush, who kind of kept that moving along in that direction before we got Clinton the first one. And so you see a lot of things like yuppiedom. And this is represented in Gremlins, not only through the cruelty of the bank and the yuppies within the bank, such as Gerald, who is played by Judge Reinhold, who is only known, I think, for playing douches, as well as Mrs. Deagle, who is a cruel, mean woman. She even has her own kind of Wicked Witch of the West-esque theme as she enters in to the film. And she's after Billy's dog, She's after her tenants. Even later, it's kind of hinted towards the end of the film that her husband, who died, was also a corrupt stockbroker person. And I think we also have to touch on the setting of this film, which is so inherent to the story itself, and that's the town of Kingston Falls. It's such a big play on the small towns, most specifically rendered in It's a Wonderful Life, another classic Christmas film. And this town is beautiful. It's quaint. It's somewhere between It's a Wonderful Life and Stars Hollow from Gilmore Girls. It's very, very cute. And everyone is kind of nice, but also kind of a dick. And what What's most interesting to me is that Kingston Falls in this iteration is a kind of fallacy. It doesn't actually seem to serve anyone. It just seems to house people and it kind of houses them to get enough work to kind of get by. And this small, beautiful town is actually a form of pacification to its residents. It's kind of dulling them in a lot of senses so that they've got this shield in front of them. And I say that it's a kind of pacification because the second that facade is attacked, it crumbles so quickly and it just falls apart. There's no inner working. There's no community support. There's no town pride that people are going to fight back and save it. It's down to like two people to do that. That's right. But when shit hits the fan and they're able to effectively quell the gremlin invasion by torching that cinema, it's all very contained, you know? None of the rest of the world heard about this. And you could believe that because it sounds like an urban legend that just happened in small town in America. I also think Gremlins does a great job of subverting the American values that are really held dear, such as independence and the self-made man or woman. Again, you see this really reflected through characters like Mrs. Deagle or Gerald. But I think it's also important to examine the character of Randall, who is Billy's father, the kind of patriarch of this small family that we're really invested in, who gets him the Mogwai. And he's this kind of dreamer. He's bought into this capitalistic myth of the get rich quick scheme and that if he can get on the right path and get the right idea, 
all his problems will be solved. He just needs that one idea and then everything will work out for him. And it's one of those things that we never kind of quite see fully fulfilled. It's hinted at at the end that the smokeless ashtray he comes up with might actually be a hit. But it's also kind of shown throughout this film that it's a fallacy and his family is struggling because of his unwillingness or inability to kind of buckle down and do one job. I found Billy's dad really essentializes America, and he really forms the nexus of this film's critique of America. He incorporates both the American dream, which is to say the idea that anyone can achieve greatness and success if they're just industrious enough, as well as the idea of the West being a place of technological innovation in the domestic realm, all the gadgets and gadgets in the home that really intended to separate Americans from more menial tasks, you know, freeing us up to enjoy this land of leisure that we supposedly live in. And I feel like the film posits a really interesting critique of the West, but it doesn't criticize it too harshly. It's very careful. In the character of Murray, who is played beautifully by Dick Miller, who really epitomizes the arrogance of Western life. He's criticizing his TV for being foreign-made. He criticizes Billy's car for being imported technology. His goddamn foreign cars, he always frees up on you. You don't find American machinery doing that. Our stuff can take anything. I think what's important to talk about when we talk about Mr. Fetterman is that it's alluded to that he's from this kind of greatest generation. He's like a World War II vet and he's, you know, a good guy who just wants to do well. But you can see that his life is falling apart. And I think what Gremlins does so well and the reason why a film like this can illuminate so much quite easily is because Joe Dante and, of course, Chris Columbus spent a lot of time developing this town as a character. So you can have scenes like like they have initially in the bar. And that's a great moment when a lot of characters come together. So you've got Gerald antagonizing Billy. You've got him kind of hitting on Kate and then Billy walking Kate home. And then you have that nice coming together of a potential relationship. But also Mr. Futterman's there. And he's kind of sad and he's, you know, kind of a fuck up. But you can tell through the way that scene plays out that he's actually a good guy. He's not like a mean drunk or a bad guy. He's fallen on hard times and he's trying to figure it out because everything that was promised to him hasn't worked out. It'll be okay. It will not be okay. How'd you, how'd you like to bring your plow for tune-up and find it loaded with farm parts? Andrea, I thought we had chips. What happened to all the chips? Did you eat all the chips No! Again? I had like a handful. Alex, we had a whole bag in there. Well, what time is it? 12.03? Well, everything is closed, so we can't get more chips. <sighs> okay, I'm fine. This is fine. Let's just, okay, whatever, Andrea. Let's just keep no, going. Andrea, whatever. I'm sure nothing will change. <laughs> so one interesting thing I came up against when I was researching Gremlins is that it's on a couple of lists of some of the most racist movies in that some critics pointed to Gremlins as representing negative stereotypes of black people. We've got these Gremlins wreaking havoc, Fried chicken, breakdancing, fashion sense, all these things. And I don't find that reading invalid at all. However, I didn't think of it as kind of a derogatory stereotyping. I considered it, and this is coming from a very white feminist, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I felt like it really reflected the impact of black culture on youth culture, that this was how you had fun. This is what cool people did and what cool kids did, and this was the side of America that conservative America wanted to quell, and I didn't really see the racial dimensions in that regard. I saw racial dimensions in the other direction. It reminded me of a cultural theorist by the name of Edward Said, whose book called Orientalism was published in 1978, and basically his book describes a critical approach to representations of the Orient, which is to say Eastern cultures, and the Near East suffered from cultural imperialism when one culture tries to to take over another culture, they often justify their actions with the belief that these cultures are exotic and primitive and underdeveloped. And so the the cultural imperialism is actually helping them out and bringing them into the 20th century or whatever. And it promotes
promotes the culturally opposite idea that Western society is more rational and developed and superior. Now, Edward Said's work has since become a cornerstone of post-colonial cultural studies. And as we've discussed on the show before, most academic inquiry done on racist depictions of black or African populations often focused on their connection to nature and hunter-gatherer style organization of societies with discourses of savagery, violence, cannibalism, etc., China, however, tends to be described with a little bit more respect. There was a movement in the late 17th century called Chinoiserie, where Europeans attempted to imitate the technological sophistication of Chinese ceramics from the Ming era and stuff like furniture and fine art. However, the Chinese were largely regarded with suspicion due to their perceived adherence to ancient ways, ancient medicine, ceremonies, meditation. These were the kinds of things that went against the Western emphasis on science and modern medicine. And even though these things have since been proven to be scientifically sound treatments and practices, at the time they were regarded as backwards and superstitious and potentially evil. So at the beginning of this film, when we've got Billy's dad, who, as I said, is Mr. America, going in and being like, hey, this is neat, this is wild, this is wacky, everything's got its price. And he really doesn't take the old man's warning carefully. With Mok Kwai comes much responsibility. I cannot sell him at any price. However, insofar as this sort of racist, sort of suspect backdrop is laid out in the end of the film, we've got the grandfather coming back in and saying, you know what, America... Maybe you're not ready for the responsibility of these things. I thought that was such a poignant critique of Western culture and very accessible, something we can all get behind after seeing the movie. Maybe we're not ready. Yeah, I definitely had that lens going into it because having seen this movie over the last few years pretty regularly, I was like, okay, going into this, I want to focus in on what this lens is of Asian racism. And it was something I was very concerned with going into it. And then I just kept going, but the grandfather's right. He is right the whole time. And he's only really in it at the very beginning and the very end. And he is so correct. And he offers this guiding hand, which the film doesn't have because things spiral out of control so quickly. And I think if anything, and if we want to reflect back on the notion that you brought up, Andrea, of it having a kind of racist element towards black culture, it's essentially that society as is slash was in the context of this film is meant to crumble. Like it's not inclusive enough and we can see that it's not inclusive enough through its treatment of the younger generation. Like these older characters are set in their ways and they seem subscribed to this horrible, sad life that they're just going to live out. And it's through characters like Billy and Kate who are, again, super white bread, super, you know, whitey, white, 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 that there is something wrong and those kids can't quite put their fingers on it, but they want to change something. Everything that gremlins wreak on this town through the events of this, you know, one night is going to change things. It's going to help them as this small little white bread town advance and evolve in a much more hopefully inclusive way. That's what I got out of it. That's not to say the kind of inclusion of the grandfather in a very stereotypical Asian way is not problematic. It is. And that's a huge problem throughout a lot of 80s films. You know, you look at anything like Pretty in Pink to Big Trouble in Little China, you know, and that's not to say those movies are bad, but we can address the problematic elements within them. So we're not saying don't enjoy Gremlins, but we're saying approach it with the critical eye that we know everyone has. That's right. It reminds me of what we were talking about when we were talking about martyrs, how violence against women depicted doesn't necessarily have to be misogynist. And you can deal with racist stereotypes and you can critique them in really artful ways. And I think it's important to reiterate these comments now because we're just coming out of this thing a few months ago when the last big Marvel movie came out, which was Doctor Strange, and that had a huge backlash against it, initially for casting Tilda Swinton as the ancient one who was initially an Asian man, and they kind of argued, but we're making it a woman, and isn't that inclusive? And we have Chitwell Effiajor, he was a white character in the comics, and now it's a black character, and isn't that cool? And a lot of the stuff I was reading and I really had to dig for it was essentially that, like, Doctor Strange was like always kind of racist and they've just kind of been whitewashing it to the point where like 
Aryan Prince Benedict Cumberbatch can play the character, you know? And I think we're going to see it again probably coming up in the next month or so because Matt Damon has this movie coming out called, like, The Great Wall, uh, alluding to The Great Wall of China, but it's this kind of fantasy picture where they're, like, actual dragons, but he's the white man so we can save them. Mm-hmm. Plus the ghost in the shell coming out. Like, a lot of these discourses are coming to light, mostly because of the Oscars movement last year. So it's great that these conversations are happening. And so I think kind of bringing in the discussions we've already had in this episode was that this town of Kingston Falls is this almost under the dome type thing. It's what, you know, the Trump America imagines as this place that needs to be saved and preserved. And isn't this what we all want again? And this film, by entering in these different elements and these different cultures into it, is showing that it's not ready for this. We actually need to do something truly active and engaged and different to make everyone feel included and welcome. Another thing I love about Gremlins is it makes Joe Dante's love of classic sci-fi cinema so evident. It's Joe's trademark thing. It's in both Gremlins and its sequel. There's a lot of reference to cinema and just the impact that cinema has on American life. How Billy pretty much always has his TV set to some old horror movie and he's never really watching it. It's just kind of forming the backdrop of the film again and again. But then you have the scene where the Gremlins infiltrate a cinema and they're sitting in the cinema and this must have been so much fun for those of you who saw gremlins in the theater because you're like holy shit it's us singing along to snow white and the seven dwarfs of all things hi ho it's off to work we go again the allusions to the american dream are evident throughout And I think what that scene illustrates so beautifully is this kind of pacification that happens that allows these gremlins to start shit and, like, be assholes and and do whatever in this theater while they're watching and engaging with this film. But this kind of, again, I'm going to use this word, pacification of the gremlins, allows Billy and Kate and Gizmo to sneak around and blow up that movie theater to essentially stop all of them. And the only gremlin who gets out of it is Stripe, who is kind of their de facto leader. And the reason Stripe gets out of that is because they were out of snacks and candy. Yum, yum. And again, if you can't look at that as a kind of satire of American consumption and the culture of fast food and wanting more food and comfort through food, then I can't help you. But the fact that Stripe has to go to a candy store and then sees his like buddies blown up. I mean, it's again these subtle layers and what I think renders Gremlins as such a great film to analyze and also enjoy is the fact that each of these steps that we are reading into moves the story forward. So you can absolutely enjoy Gremlins on a super fun, this is just a weird, wacky film that's really great and fast-paced and fun to watch. Or you can take each of those bites and unpack it a little bit more. So we need to talk about Kate's hilarious little soliloquy. And I believe I read somewhere that someone had moved to cut it and Joe Dante was like, no way, Jose, that is hilarious and that's staying. And I'm so glad it did because we've talked at length in this podcast about just kind of these female supporting characters who are just there to maybe provide a love interest, give Billy someone to protect, something like that. But in delivering that speech, Kate really locates herself in this story. She brings this history. It's a hilarious satire of an urban legend type thing. Thing that she says firemen came and broke through the chimney top and me and mom were expecting them to pull out a dead cat or a bird and instead they pulled out my father but it actually does a lot for giving her character development I really love that actress, Phoebe Cates, and that's mainly because, obviously, I never really got through all of Gremlins for the longest time, but because when I was little, I loved this movie called Drop Dead Fred. And for any other little girls out there, I don't know if you also had this experience or any little boys out there, like, that movie meant a lot to me. I watched it not that long ago. It still holds up. And then Phoebe Cates, and she was obviously kind of famous before this in Fast Times at Ridgemount High. Then I think shortly after, in the early to mid-90s, she hooked up with Kevin Klein and then got married. 
and then retired from acting, pretty much. I think she does a few things every so often, but she's content to be a wife, and I think she owns a shop in New York, which I would very much like to visit. But when I went to sit down and write my thoughts down about Gremlins, I was like, I have to devote like an hour to thinking about Kate's monologue. I don't understand it. I don't know where it comes from. What is this? I'm confused. It led me to a different train of thought through the film as a whole. Now, what we think about when we see Kate is she kind of hints at this story a bit before she actually says it. You know, and Billy's like, oh, I love Christmas. And she's like, not everyone does, Billy. I don't celebrate Christmas. What, are you Hindu or something? No, I just don't like to. What Kate does, and then it illuminated so many other things in the film for me, was she situates the personal feelings about Christmas in a micro level versus the macro level. So we are all in this time period right now. It's December and it's the holidays. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, you're certainly aware that it's about to happen to all of us. It's this thing that you can't escape. I mean, we get days off for it. Everyone plans their lives around it. It's something very, very big in our kind of Christian Western calendar. And so Kate's story actually codes Christmas for her as personal and horrifying. So it's the beginning of a understanding that Christmas is not just this happy, clappy, high-level thing that can be marketed to us. It's a lot of things, and it involves triggering elements. It involves pain. It involves confusion. And then when I was thinking about the film as a whole, the Christmas cheer is never really questioned, but we have these things that kind of render Christmas as problematic. So you've got Kate's story, which has plagued her her whole life. And then earlier on in the film, you had the family dog who's strung up with Christmas lights, the kitchen scene where the Christmas treats are being prepared, and Billy's mother then kind of kills the gremlins in these elements that help make the treats. And then, of course, the scene right thereafter where she is attacked from the gremlin within the Christmas tree. And then a scene a little later on when the gremlins show up actually singing Christmas carols. It's these things to render Christmas as horrifying and problematic and confusing because we're expecting all these like bright and happy, merry moments to happen in this month. And then we are confronted with horrifying elements. Mm -hmm. Even the very basic plot point of Billy's dad being like, oh, I've got to get something. I've got to get something great for my son. I can't just (laughs) go to the liquor store and get him a bottle of whiskey. There's a lot of pressure to come up with the next best thing. And I think even within himself as an inventor, he's got to come up with the next best thing and hopefully get it out in time before Christmas because it's such a consumer boon. We just got through... Black Friday, which began as an American thing and has since seeped up to Canada. So that was pandemonium around here. Even at Rue Morgue, we had just a little sale and we made tons and tons of sales. And Black Friday, if you didn't know, the reason it's called Black Friday is because it's when many businesses get out of the red for the year. It's when they make their money back and it's Black Friday. And I think elements like that, when we talk about the consumerist elements of Christmas, it's important to understand that for the big conglomerates, it's a time, as Andrea just said, when they make their money back. This is a bottom line time of year for them. It's not just, you know, let's be merry and bright. It's like, let's make all of our fucking money. And then so when you have this kind of final confrontation between Billy and Kate and Gizmo and Stripe, it's no wonder that it's happening at the department store, which just been shut down for Christmas and it's happening on Christmas Eve. But you've got all these displays up and this rampant, drunken consumerism that happens at this time of year, which becomes so hard to escape. So as we talk about rampant consumerism and this and that and the other and all ties into the holidays... Another thing that ties into the holidays, I would say just as much, hopefully, as consumerism is spending time with those you care about. And one of the things that really shook my brain a little bit when I was watching it this time was the narration in this film. And the narration comes in and it goes away and then it comes back. So the narration I'm referring to is, of course, Randall's narration, Billy's father. And he opens up the film by saying, I've got this story to tell you. 
And then the story starts, and then it becomes about Billy and Kate and Gizmo, and then Randall's away at this inventor's conference, and he kind of pops back with phone calls every so often, but he's not there. And then it ends with the Asian grandfather coming back, and seemingly order is kind of sort of restored. And then Randall's narration picks up again with a, well, that's my story, and it just boggled my mind of how can you have this narrator jump in and jump out and really not be present throughout the whole story because it's not his story. That led me to think about how this film, on top of being about all the things we've already said it being about, has a big thematic element of the absentee father. And that sense that, you know, the man goes out and he makes the money and he does this, that, and the other, and it's all going to be fine if daddy's cool. And daddy's not here, and daddy wasn't cool to start with in this film. So there are actually a lot of absentee fathers in this film outside of Randall. So we've got Randall, obviously. Then we can kind of look at the grandfather character, the Asian grandfather, who is unwillingly absent throughout the film. And then you can look at Billy as a kind of absentee father to Gizmo, who isn't able to properly look after him or care for him or follow three basic rules. And then, of course, Kate's father, who succumbed to this horrible death by trying to live up to this like wonderful idea that he had. And ultimately, what this film is saying about fatherhood is that it's responsibility. And the responsibility is paramount to any kind of lasting, safe relationship with a child. It's explicitly shown through Gizmo, again, with those three simple rules that they are not able to manage at all all. Like, I lose my shit in that movie when Billy brings a mogwai to a science teacher and they're just like, we'll just put more water on it. And I was like, you idiots! You damn idiots! That poor thing! So I feel, and again, Christmas is this time where we're taught, as we talked about, this lie of Santa Claus, where it's this kindly old man who's going to distribute us gifts, and he's not there. He's not present, but he's supposed to judge us every year. And um, again, I think it's playing into this fallacy of the responsibility that people are forced upon when they have children and how for a lot of people, it's too hard. It seems like the simple thing. It seems like the thing we're all hardwired to do, which is to bring in children into this world and raise them with our values and expose them to good things in this world and teach them you know, to look both ways before they cross the road. But this film illustrates how deeply challenging that is. Part and parcel of the American dream is the idea of this perfect nuclear family where the patriarch is the breadwinner and his chief responsibility is to keep food on the table, bring home the bacon and maybe swoop in at Christmas time to dazzle everybody. And that is parenting with a capital P. Here we have someone who their house is full of his inventions that suck. And I'm always struck by how patient Billy and his mother are continuing to use these products. And yes, it's comedy relief, but I also found it kind of touching how much they just believe in him unconditionally. It's pretty lovely. I also picked up on the fact that it's weird that he's doing the narration when it's not his story. But I guess if you look at it in terms of it was his lesson to learn. It was his fuck up that made all of this happen. And I don't super get the sense in the end that he really learned his lesson. I think he just kind of got scolded and was like, okay, see ya. Do it all again next year. But that was his role in the story. And I think what this film ultimately comes down on the side of, and as we've talked through this film so far, it's that things weren't right in the way they were set up in Kingston Falls. They were wrong. And through the events of this kind of Christmas Eve into Christmas Day, there was a transformation, particularly for Billy and Kate, who worked together and stopped this gremlins infestation and were looking towards something else. And that, for me, is crystallized when the Asian grandfather comes in to collect gizmo and he says, Perhaps someday you may be ready. Until then, Mokwai will be waiting. So there is a sense that if Billy learns this lesson and works hard, maybe one day he and his friend Gizmo can be reunited. But then they are, and it doesn't go so good. 
Now, Gremlins 2 takes a decidedly Ghostbusters-y approach to its sequel in that what's one way we can one-up the idea of Gremlins overtaking a place like Kingston Falls? Well, let's let them loose in New York City. But what I love about Gremlins 2 is it takes this satire and it just expands upon it. Joe Dante wasn't content to just rest on the laurels of this is a cutesy thing and then it all goes wrong and this and that. Like, let's keep that critique of consumer alive. And so he's posited instead of the setting of Kingston Falls, small town America, it's super huge corporate New York America. And you've got Billy who is now engaged to Kate and they're kind of small fries in the world trying to make their way up. And what they come up against, of course, is in addition to trying to make their way in the corporate world, the Chinese antique shop is essentially getting bulldozed to make way for this shopping mart super center that kind of wants to keep a quaint little Asian area of it alive, but they want to change it. And the grandpa is really reluctant to do that. So conveniently, he dies and corporate America gets its way. I actually really loved the character of Clamp. I thought that they didn't demonize him too much. You know, he kind of had an underling who really represented the evils of corporate America. But this guy just has stars in his eyes. And once again, he's a magnification of that American dream of how can I expand this empire? What other ways can I just take over the world? And, of course, Clamp is the kind of conglomerate person, this personification of a conglomerate that Billy and Kate now both work for, Billy in a more office job, and Kate as a kind of tour guide. And when I was re-watching, I think actually, you know, you know I'm going to take that back. I'm going to say when I watched this for the first time, which was a couple weeks ago, I was like, oh, this Clamp character seems awfully familiar. And then, of course, I went to IMDb Trivia, and, of course, Clamp was based on Donald Trump. So there we go. Clamp for president. Yep. Make Clamp great again. It was something that an ex-boyfriend of mine had tried to get me to watch a few years ago, Gremlins 2, and we watched part of it. And this was before my Gremlins OG renaissance. I was like, okay, yeah, this is fine. And we stopped watching it and I never went back to it. And then when I watched it again in the last couple of weeks, I really loved it. I loved the way it, instead of satirizing the American dream explicitly, it satirized the idea of the sequel. And I actually texted this ex-boyfriend after I watched it and I was like, okay, you were totally right. It was a really great movie. And he was like, I know. (laughs) What's important to note about Gremlins 2 is that there is a big gap in between Gremlins and Gremlins 2, you know, about six, seven years. And that was because, I mean, obviously Gremlins was this huge hit. They did a lot on a very small budget. It blew up. There was so much merchandise and cereal and all this garbage that you could consume. So Warner Brothers, the studio behind it, was super keen to make a sequel. And they tried it with a couple different directors. Joe Dante backed out at an early stage. And they kind of kept getting a retread of the original film. And they were like, ugh, doesn't feel right, doesn't feel right. For once, to a studio's credit, they were like, this needs to be better. So they eventually, years later, circled back around to Joe Dante, and Joe Dante kind of pitched them the idea of like, okay, I'd like to do it, but in New York. And to kind of alleviate their budget concerns about filming in New York or doing something on bigger sets, he said, okay, well, we can confine it to a big office building. So I definitely see what you mean about the Ghostbuster sequels, but it seems to kind of enlarge itself through a kind of diehard narrative. Like it's this apparently super modern, super technical building, which is going to be the wave of the future that ultimately falls prey to the gremlins and the way the gremlins rip it apart. And I think that's the real genius of gremlins as an antagonist, as a force of nature, is they dismantle things so quickly. And I love in this film that we get a lot more characters. Obviously, the electric gremlin gets made fun of an awful lot, most specifically if anyone watches Key and Peel, they do a great skit all about that. What about a uh, spider gremlin? You mean a gremlin with eight legs and a thorax just catching pretty ladies in a web in an office building? Oh my God, it's in the movie. I love it. Next. What about a bat gremlin? You mean a gremlin with leathery wings just flying around, flip-flopping, bust through a wall, make a perfect bat symbol in the wall, get outside, get in some wet concrete, jump up on a building and just dry in place like a gargoyle gremlin? We are cooking with gas now. I love it. It's in the movie, Matt. Could there be a female gremlin? 
Lipstick, boobies, bitch, you have me, and little gremlin but JJ. I love it so much that it's not only in the movie, but it's definitely in the movie. There's no backseats on that one, no penny taxis. Yes, 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 in the movie, done! That's why we need a woman in the writer's room. Next. So... As regards the electrical gremlin, I felt like that was the first time that gremlins really spoke to the original meaning of gremlins, which I've been dying to get into on this podcast. Now, the term is believed to have come about as early as World War I when it was a myth among airmen. It comes from the old English word grimian, which means to vex, and it was applied to explain technological mishaps. We've even used it on this podcast when Alex's mic isn't working for some reason. But it's working now, right? We'll see. <laughs> the term was popularized by author Roald Dahl, who wrote his first children's novel, The Gremlins, about these tiny, mischievous men. It was published as a picture book in 1943. Now, Dahl's gremlins were motivated to fuck with British aircrafts as revenge for the British bulldozing their forest home to make way for an aircraft factory. One Englishman makes peace with the gremlins and gets to know them and joins forces with them to fight a common enemy, which, of course, at the time was the Nazis, although now in retrospect, I don't know why they'd give a fuck about the Nazis. Now, of course, us horror fans are probably more familiar with the gremlin that appeared in the 1963 episode of The Twilight Zone called Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which was based on a book by Richard Matheson. And the episode featured William Shatner playing a plane passenger who sees a gremlin sabotaging the wing of the plane. But of course, nobody believes him. He had recently suffered from a mental breakdown. And they returned to the story in the Twilight Zone movie with John Lithgow. So I feel like Gremlins 2 and, and this electric gremlin, I feel like it really puts gremlins in that technological element. That's the best way I can justify it. Weird lightning bolt gremlin. Well, it was also because they had in this film, they got Rick Baker on board. And part of the reason why they were able to get him on board, because the Gremlins were so iconic, as was Gizmo, but they opened up this opportunity of you can create a lot of different types of Gremlins and like, let's play with that. Let's create different personas for them. And the fact that you have the egghead Gremlin, the leader who is able to speak and talk and be super articulate, the way that puppet's mouth moves is pretty insanely amazing, even by today's standards. Oh, yeah. And that scene is so funny. When I first saw Christopher Lee walk onto the set, I was like, oh, no, what are you doing here? This is Gremlins, man. But the look on his face when the smart Gremlin starts pontificating is priceless. When you introduce genetic material of research quality to a life form such as ours, which is possessed of a, a sort of, a, I hesitate to use the word, atavism, but let us say a highly aggressive nature. For example, that fellow over near the, um, I believe that's a common bat of the order Choroptera, the only mammals, I might add, capable of complying. But I like that sequel so much because it makes fun of not only the initial film, which they kind of gently poke at in different ways, like the way Kate kind of reiterates this traumatic story. So funny. And she gets cut off in the middle of it. And it's great. <laughs> it's this little throwaway thing. But I think her speech in the initial film is very odd and kind of iconic to fans of the film that to poke at it a little bit that's fun we all know that we're on the same team with this one but to just poke at the merchandising the marketing of it the way you can market everything so that the point at the end of the film when clamp becomes obsessed with this picture that billy has drawn of kingston falls and he's going to remake it again and he's going to commodify it and push it out to the whole world boy oh boy is that what's happening now I also love how he makes reference to commodifying the gremlins themselves. I think he specifically describes that they're going to be little gizmos with suction cups on their hands that people are going to put in their car window. Like, wow. You can see pretty overtly, I think, in the film, if you go back to it, that in the initial film, the design of Gizmo is very cute. It's very, very cute. But he has a bit more of the elements that would turn into gremlins. So his features, I find, are a bit harsher, especially around the eyes. And then 
in this film, because they kind of did away with Gizmo turning into Spike, they stripped those elements away. So he's just this bright-eyed, super cute thing. And I love that they play with Gizmo's adaptation of, you know, watching films in the first one and again in the second one where he picks up on these heroic characters and he plays out those narratives in order to save his friends. And I was thinking about it, it kind of goes a little bit into what we were talking a bit about in our Ghostbusters episode from the summer, is that representation is important and it allows us to play these things out in our minds and, and it allows us to imagine possible futures. And I think that's why we gravitate so heavily to film and television and anything that allows us to explore and again, play out these scenarios. So Gizmo is very much us, I think, especially a child version of us. So getting to see that, oh boy, is that little guy cute. I just love him so much. I know I should be more cynical about it, but he's so cute. It actually irritates me how cute he is. Usually that kind of thing irritates me. Usually it drives me crazy, but I just I just want to save him and I just want to protect him. Now, Gremlins 2 also features an interesting supporting character in Billy's sort of manager. Now, she's a really kind of shitty caricature of what was starting to happen in the 80s, the corporate female, the female who is in a situation where she wants to climb the corporate ladder, she's working, she's already achieved a position of management in some way, but she's also very nervous, she's very, very insecure, she's terrified, but also intrigued by slash attracted to Clamp, and we've got her kind of seducing Billy in this weird side plot thing where she kind of makes Kate jealous, and I've been turning it over in my head and trying to locate that purpose within the film, and I I think it's just for lulls, personally. Well, I think it also, and I think what a lot of the Gremlins thematic elements in both films is about the theme of authenticity. And I think even more so in the sequel and the fact that this female manager character, she's, you know, it's it's all fake. I'm sure there's a real person under there, but it's all put on, you know, the smoking, the sucking up. She's about as constant as, you know, the wind. She'll go in any which direction. And so it's posed in counterdistinction to someone like Kate, who is just herself. She's Kate. She is her. She is going to do her thing to support the other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the entire Gremlins franchise, such as it is with just these two films, is so effective because of all the counterbalances. There's the good, wholesome America with bad, greedy America. There's the mysterious, exotic China with the wise, ancient China. Even violence versus Christmas cheer and the mall versus violence. I don't know. I I get pretty violent when I'm in a mall. (laughs) That's not much of a contradistinction to me. Obviously, as with every other franchise that was near and dear to us in the 80s, there has been talk of a remake and another sequel, and it just keeps going and going. I wasn't able to find anything concrete about anything coming up. Were you? I think there was talk around this time last year that Gremlins 3 is definitely happening and it's going to be a sequel rather than a reboot or something like that. And okay. Okay. Here's me holding my breath. (gasps) (laughs) But we already talked about how Gremlins kind of bridges the gap between a fantasy horror comedy and it's pretty lighthearted. There were other films that took that conceit and applied it to a harder horror format. Most notably Ghoulies is the one that I'm thinking of. Critters? Critters as well, sure. Yeah. Any kind of little animals, but I don't think anyone ever really got that kind of heartfeltness that uh, the initial film really captures. Yeah, it's that Spielbergianness that I'm actually kind of resistant to, but it's hard not to give yourself over to its charms. I, I think it's because there's a kind of Spielbergian moral center to the film, mm-hmm. but everything else is conflated by this Dante-esque, and I mean that in both sense of the Dantes, that this world that is, you know, crumbling and messy and gross and violent and weird and sexually weird and complicated. So I, I think that's why I don't feel put off by this mm-hmm. kind of saccharine, gross, ooey-gooey feel-goodness, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of darkness in this world. World. And I, I respect that. I respect that you want to show goodness through the darkness. 
So that's our episode on Gremlins, guys. I hope you got as much out of this episode as I did. Personally, in coming up with the idea of going back to it, this is going to be a fun, lighthearted episode. I really underestimated how much satire and parody was going on in these films, and I'm kicking myself for it because it's Joe Dante. He does this shit so well. I adore the burbs. I think it's wonderful, and I am so glad that we revisited it. I have a whole new appreciation. I know. I'm hoping maybe next year on the Faculty of Horror, we can maybe do something about werewolves so we can talk about the howling. Ooh, that would be great. But in the meantime, as far as announcements go, I'd like to thank everybody who came out to my YouTube channel to ask us questions for the 1,000 subscriber Q&A episode. I had Alex on the episode, and it's the longest Batcave episode there is. It's even long by YouTube standards. Like an hour-long video is actually difficult to manage in terms of it took like four hours to render and another four to upload to YouTube. But I really enjoyed it. And even just watching it after the fact, I thought it was really fun and it had a great response from you, the viewers. So I'm so glad you dug it. Yeah, it was so much fun to do. Thank you again for having me on. We were able to do a really fun giveaway. And uh, we will link the Batcave episode in the show notes to this episode in case you missed it, because it was really fun to do. And we got asked a lot of kind of big general questions, which we tackled. So it might be a good resource for some people. And as for homework, we have no homework for you guys this time. We are going into our January episode, and typically our January episode would be an assessment episode where we look back on the year and address everybody's questions and concerns. However, as we mentioned in the last episode, we prefer to address those questions inside the format that they were given to us. We have great discussions with you guys. We answer your emails. My very favorite is when you guys comment on something and discuss it with each other. I think that's so wonderful. And so in January, we have decided to do away with the assessment episode format. And instead, we're just going to do a year in review episode. We're going to look back on 2016, which admittedly was a very ugly and gut-wrenching year, but fuck it, we're horror fans. That's what we live for. And we're going to look it in the face and pick it apart the way the Faculty of Horror does. We're also going to have a lot of fun. We'll have the bloopers as we always do in the January episode. And we're going to play some games and it's going to be a good time. So take the holidays off. No homework this month. And as a small Christmas present from Andrea and myself, we have made a Spotify playlist out of all the songs we totally legally put at the end of every episode. So this goes all the way back from episode one up until this current episode. So if you're on Spotify, you can search Faculty of Horror. Our playlist should come up. Alternatively, I will get the link for that and we will put it in the show notes. So you should be able to click through to that. Spotify is free, so you can get that through a free subscription. You can also upgrade, but who has fucking time for that? So anyway, it's a pretty fun playlist when I was putting it together. It's everything from like Rammstein to Madonna. It really takes me back listening to those songs. I remember the episodes and I remember what we talked about. And every now and then we get questions from you guys about those songs. So please enjoy the playlist as our holiday treat for you. Well, I think that's everything for like yeah, is that man, it? four years of podcasting. Fuck. Okay. What do you say, right? All right. Let's get out of here. Let's go get a drink and... Uh, Actually, you know what? Uh, I think I left something out in the hallway. Let me go check, make sure it's still there. Okay. All right. Um, oh, Andrea, you look smaller than before. Did you use a new face cream? Maybe you're allergic to it. Um, okay, Andrea. Uh, until next time, office hours are closed. <laughs>
Stick it.